Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. Bjorn founded Oatly with his brother in 1994. Believe it or not, back then, people misheard and thought they were trying to sell goat milk. Fast forward to today, and Oatly IPO'd in May 2021 at a value of $10 billion. But how did this startup from Lund, Sweden become the leading alt milk brand? In today's episode, we cover Oatly's startup journey, starting with how Bjorn left a background in cybersecurity to help commercialize his brother's academic research. We also discuss how Oatly went to market from first launching as a food ingredient company to targeting lactose intolerant markets before pursuing their famous barista strategy. We also talk about the brothers' other entrepreneurial endeavors. Early on, they spun out Oatly's R&D arm and created a venture to do more scientific research into the health benefits of oats and other foods. Today, they have launched a range of ventures that are grounded in science, demonstrating clear health benefits that are backed by clinical studies and are patent protected. Enjoy. I kind of want to start by just checking in and, you know, one, knowing how you are, but also how you're feeling because on May 20th, 2021, Oatly IPO'd, and that was a company that you helped to found. So how is it now? It's two months later. How are you feeling? Oh, I feel great. It's been uh, quite a journey. Um, and uh, people seem to think that IPO is some kind of an end point or so. It's just uh, the beginning, you know, the end of one chapter and the beginning of a new chapter. And I'm super excited to follow the company in, into the future. And I want to go back to the the very beginning of the chapter that when Oatly was founded, it was started by you and your brother. And that's not something that necessarily happens every day. So how did that come about that you two went into business together? Uh, no, that was quite uh, uh, unexpected in many ways. I, I came, uh, I mean, my brother, and it, it really all the credit should go to him. He, he's the inventor. He uh, had the idea. He put in all the hard work for years in the labs without support from anyone and, and uh, being laughed at and scolded. <laughs> By, by industry insiders and, you know, old students of his that tested it and spat it out in the sink and said, this is unsellable, undrinkable. Uh, anyway, um, so he, as a professor of food chemistry at the University of Lund, uh, uh, he grew up academically in an environment where, where his then professor, chief of the department, uh, originally discovered lactose intolerance, was the first guy, Professor Dahlqvist, to describe the fact that um, a lot of people can't actually digest milk when they're um, growing up, right? Uh, which turns out to be the normal thing with mammals. Um, it's quite possibly a way for nature to signal to the baby that it's time to stop nursing and actually leave the breast for the next in line and, and go out and start mm -hmm. eat real food. Uh, and then uh, through centuries and millennials, uh, it's one one gene pair that changed. It's a simple mutation, uh, good old Darwinism and survival of the fittest um, made 
Scandinavians living in a rough climate, uh, those that were able to actually consume milk at you know older age had a better uh, had a competitive advantage and survived. And you see other groups around the world. I'm getting off the topic, but it's an interesting backstory, right? <clears throat> the Maasai, for example, the Noma tribe in Eastern Africa are all lactotolerant, which is kind of unexpected. And they're surrounded by nomadic tribes that are not. Hmm. So it's, it's kind of fascinating, right? Uh, anyway, so he uh, he was that set on developing a better milk, a milk for everybody that uh, had no issues with lactose or milk protein, uh, for example, that is the cause of allergies for children. Uh, is that just because he loved milk? I think he was more driven by the fact that he grew up academically in an environment where, where um, because his professor had discovered lactose intolerance, scientifically they were looking at all kinds of issues how can we make a better milk right and already we knew that the fat was bad in milk so we took that out and started selling low fat and skim milk and now people wanted to take the milk sugar out um it's not much left in there at the end of the day if you keep working that way and that's if you have an imperfect raw material that's where you end up so he wanted to make the perfect raw material where the proteins the carbs and the fats are exactly proportion to what the human body needs mm. and uh, he started looking at all kinds of plants and landed fairly quickly in oats noticed also that oats had some additional health benefits cholesterol reduction for example uh, um, the dietary fibers in oats are well known for its prebiotic properties so helping your your gut um, uh, stay healthy um, it's a lot of good things with oats. Um, exist all over the world. It's relatively cheap. Uh, pretty much any culture on the planet associated with oats with health and health benefits. Um, so it turned out to be a really good raw material, right? Uh, I was on a very different journey at that time. I was in the software industry building a, a computer security company and had an incredible journey with that. But we started, you know, we met up for Christmas and holidays back home and he showed off his different products. And we all kind of thought that that's pretty cool. That's interesting. But what the heck do you do with it? Mm -hmm. And there was in those days, we we're talking very early 1990s, there was really no, nobody said, I mean, the word uh, uh, plant-based dairy or non-dairy, or I mean, they weren't even invented then, right? There was really no market for that. Uh, but uh, as a marketeer, that's always intriguing, right? You have a great product. There's no need for it. There's no demand, really. But there, there's, I should say, rephrase that. There is a need for it, clearly. But uh, people weren't aware. So how do you bring a new product to the market? And particularly in a country like Sweden, then, where I think 95% uh, lactotolerant and uh, Milk is holy. You know, the per capita consumption of dairy in Sweden is, is higher than in the U.S., for example, right? So don't mess with my milk. I mean, you can do whatever you want, but don't mess with my milk. Um, that was sort of the, the, the premise to, to you know, uh, launch a new product. I sold my software company in 97 and uh, have been following my brother's trials and tribulations with, with trying to get something launched and saw an opportunity to do something very different. I felt, you know, you could argue that the career path moved from computer security to oat milk felt clearly very obvious and straightforward. So I took that path and uh, 
started working with my brother and uh, we started uh, selling the product as an ingredient to the food industry because we, we felt that uh, uh, that must have been the, you know, we, we didn't know the consumer goods industry. We didn't know how to sell or brand uh, food products. So if we could sell it to the big companies, that would be an easy uh, way out for us. How did that go? Well, lo and behold, the first thing I did was to close a deal with Danone as an ingredient to yogurt. So, you know, I came in, invested in 97, bought out some of the other early stage investors and, you know, built a company. We developed a business plan and, and went uh, set, out, set out after the big food companies landed down on that decided to launch a yogurt using our product uh, yogurt they branded Celia and launched i believe 98 99 around there and we felt like well that was easy done next kind of thing right <laughs> but uh, what happened was that Danon um failed with the product and uh, the, after one year in the market they pulled it uh, we, and that journey was very eye-opening for us in many ways because we were frustrated with um the poor quality of the product so that who were we to tell Danon that we actually made a better oat yogurt in our own lab than Danon with all their global resources did and the other thing that frustrated us was that they couldn't promote the benefits of oats and we asked them and they, well you know we're a dairy company we can't go out with uh, something that in some way portrays itself as being better than the milk product right mm. So obviously they launched a product that they didn't, it couldn't promote on its own benefits and, and advantages and, and um, it failed. That is when we decided to, you know, do it, go all in and develop our own brand. And in 2001, Oatly was born. We hired a team, hired a CEO and uh, built an organ that knew the food industry and built an organization around it. And, and, uh, as they say, the rest is history. I heard a story that when you were first getting started and first starting to tell news of this oat milk, this oat product, that people heard it as goat milk and mm -hmm. completely <laughs> did not understand what you were trying to do. How, how was right. that journey in the beginning of communicating it and, and getting people on board, getting people to try it? Yeah, so, I mean, it was obvious that goat milk, oat milk, just didn't resonate, uh, right? So people thought we said goat milk. And I have a number of stories where people, you know, you gave up your international career in com com computer security to to go milk goats. Are you are you nuts? You know, um, I probably I was nuts. Yeah, I was nuts. There's no <laughs> question about that, right? But but um, we had fun. We loved it, and. Uh, but so it's a good, good uh, in, in some sense, uh, lesson in, in branding and marketing. When you go out, you have to, it's so heavy to educate the market to something new, but we had to, but we had to identify the, the lowest hanging fruit we could possibly imagine. And, and um, we honed in on families with milk protein allergic children. Uh, about 2% of all children, pretty much around there, 1.5 to 2 somewhere globally, are milk protein allergic. Most of them grow out of it by the age of 7, 8, 9, somewhere. They, they've grown out of that. But uh, it's a big problem for the families uh, in terms of cooking and socially. It's a big problem. You can't, uh, when you have a five-year-old five birthday party, your kid cannot have ice cream. Everybody else can. 
you know, or that kind of stuff. Uh, so socially, it's a big deal. And and when you start looking at that, the numbers, if it's, you say, 2% of the market, it actually impacts a little larger fraction of the market. Mm-hmm. So we started there. We started by offering them a, a range of products, ice cream and milks and creams directly from the get-go. And, and uh, uh, that was enough to give us the, just enough inertia to get into the uh, health food stores. So, uh, started in England and in the and in Sweden, and um, you know we steadily grew. We started adding the vegans. Veganism in the late uh, early two thousand was not very prevalent, but there were certainly vegans out there, and they were very vocal. So they helped spread the message pretty well. But you start with those kind of niches, right? And you add one to the other. And that it impacted also the branding and marketing. If you look at the cartons and the packaging from those early days, it was a very medical, clinical look. There's no point in talking to a mass market because there was no mass market for that kind of product then, right? Hmm. And, and gradually you started adding, you know, more and more consumers. And, and uh, as we grew bigger and bigger, the need to change the positioning to become a mass market, mass consumer product increased. And that's why uh, by 2012, we decided to completely redo the company and completely redo the leadership. We had a head of sales marketing from big food companies and our CEO was a traditional food company. Guy, he did a phenomenal job for a couple of years getting organization and structure right. But we felt we came to a point there, a pivotal point where we needed to take a big leap of faith and jump into a mass market. And the way to do that was to squarely go after the dairy industry. We did not want to be we didn't saw, see soy and almond as our primary competition. And I think that set us apart from everybody else in the alt milk category, right? They saw themselves as competing with each other. And I think that was another very important uh, differentiator in the history of Oatly that we actually decided that our competition is not soy or almond. Our competition is dairy. And we're going to challenge them. And we identified... We did our homework and identified there's one area where they can never win. You know, we could argue health benefits back and forth. And, you know, that could be, it's impossible for, for a consumer to see through who is right and who is wrong. Although we argue we are right, right? But, but I mean, with the their industry's muscles and, and traditions and everything, really tough. Uh, taste is, you know... It's partially, it's really a hard game uh, to play. But there's one area where they have no chance. They can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. They have absolutely zero chance. And that's in environmental and sustainability questions. Mm. They are so wrong and they are so off. And, and um, you know, so that's, we saw their Achilles heel and we went after it. And what are the environmental benefits of Oatly compared to regular dairy or some of the other options on the market? Well, there's a number of them, of course, right? It all translates to dramatically reduced uh, greenhouse gas emissions, seven to nine times, depending on what data you look at and whatnot. But it's 
it, it comes back to dramatically reduced water um, need or water footprint uh, and dramatically reduced acreage needed uh, in terms of the protein production, right? But typically, it's about a one to seven. They're, they're more exact data. And you can look it up on the website, but um, mm. the Oatly Sustainability Report. But it's roughly one to seven uh, uh, if you look at acreage uh, use, uh, water footprint, um, and um, uh, yeah, the other parameters. But that translates into dramatically reduced uh, carbon emissions, of course. Mm. You say, in your opinion, it changed that Oatly really became a challenger. Uh, because now it's pushing the boundaries in so many ways, and we see it still with the regulation going back and forth of naming and branding and what can be called what, you know, uh, yeah. when you look at this industry. So, so yeah, and I mean, we brought the new leadership uh, team on board, and they came, Tony, a uh, uh, phenomenal guy and really fun person to work with, but he... The biggest advantage why we hired him was that he was not from the food industry. And we felt that whenever we interviewed people from within the food industry, they were, in some sense, clueless, or at least they were stuck in the old ways, right? And, and uh, to, to challenge and be a disruptor and create a lifestyle brand, uh, which I think the other driving factor behind this was that we had so much in in, in the company, in the history of it and the development, the story behind it that we wanted to tell that we never told. Mm. We were kind of falling victims of what, you know, we accused Danona once upon a time, right? You don't use your own strong strength and your own benefits. You don't play to your own strength. And we had that in us. The whole company, all the employees, everybody was on fire for sustainability issues and saving the planet and providing a healthier, better product to the masses. But we didn't say that and we didn't communicate that. And in order to get that message across, we needed to go outside of the traditional norms and find a completely new leadership team that understood how to engage consumers. And they understood how to catch and capture that story and communicate it in a, in a great, innovative way. Mm. I'm very curious about how you found product market fit in this journey, because I can hear in the beginning, it started with a niche of let's go after children who are lactose intolerant or can't take regular milk. And it, as you said, it was kind of clinical in its branding and way of communicating to then finding product make, uh, product market fit at mass market and really appealing to a much broader audience. What were those two moments when you first realized you had something when it was niche? And then when you realized it was something that could appeal to the greater people? Yeah. Um. I think uh, uh, the really a big pivotal moment was when we developed our barista product. And uh, we have way back already from day one, if you look at globally, where is milk consumed? And I don't have the exact number, so I apologize for that. But there's, if my memory uh, is correct, it's roughly 60 65%, say we're, say 50 to 70%, somewhere in that bracket of all white milk consumed is consumed into your coffee on a global basis. Mm. So if you want to go after milk and be a, a real player, in, you need to have a product that A, king, taste is king. It has to fulfill anyone's 
taste, uh, desires for a good taste, right? B, you'd need to have the functional properties that you expect from a product in that environment, right? So it needs to foam, it needs to give you that creaminess uh, in, in its texture, your mouthfeel. Uh, and uh, uh, if you have those, everything else, or, yeah, important, right? Clean label and, you know, coming from an ingredient that you know what it is and trust and believe in and all that good stuff. But taste is king. And if you don't have that right, don't even, I mean, you can certainly still sell products. Soy milk did a good job of creating a fairly good market, despite the fact that most consumers didn't like it, right? But they also only grew to a certain level and they couldn't burst through that glass ceiling. And then almond milk came and surpassed them. And I think now oat milk is about to surpass almond milk. It will happen in the US too, I'm sure, soon. Mm. It's already happened in Europe. Um, so, so uh, uh, yeah, uh, we came to that point when we, we, so we started looking at developing an oat milk for that behaved perfectly in coffee, didn't separate and could foam very well and had the taste and functional properties you expected. And that, that turned out to be a really difficult thing. Um, so, you know, we started in two, 2001 or so, and, and it wasn't until 2014 that uh, so it took many, many years to, and a lot of research and trial and horror, as we say, to figure out how to do it without additives. That's another critical, you know, uh, there's a lot of you can do in food industry and the food industry traditionally solves all problems by all kinds of additives. And, and we just, uh, that was never the only way. But when we discovered that we had a product that, in fact, uh, married the coffee notes uh, extremely well and, and uh, doesn't have the aftertaste in the palate that milk has, if you think about it, you drink your cappuccino with milk, you'll get a coating in your palate afterwards that um, is actually not very pleasant. We, a lot of people like to have a chewing gum or something to get. It's just that we're so used to it, so we don't react, right? If you have an oatly uh, cappuccino, you don't actually get that. So you have the, the marrying of the, the notes and, and it enhances and marries well all the different notes in the coffee that the roasters are so concerned about or carefully uh, developed. You know, they spend their time figuring out how to optimize the best roast with the best beans to get the best, best uh, notes of flavor. and. A lot of them were very frustrated with consumers wanting almond milk because the almond milk would kill all those notes. So it's kind of, why did I spend all that time sourcing the best beans and, you know, spending X hours in the lab to get the best roast and the consumer has killed it all with almond milk. So, uh, no, we got uh, strong support from the coffee trade right away. And, and that led to the development of the barista strategy as it's, quite famously called today, right? Based on the fact that we have the superior product. And there was a big need. How did you get the benefit of the, the coffee trade? And then what is the barista strategy? So it really started with, uh, uh, because there was a different big need, combination of a couple of factors, a big need, uh, a big void in the market for a good plant-based alternative in coffee. Uh, big, strong consumer demand you know we're talking 2014 15 now 16 so only five six seven years ago 
uh, when the the, um, the Gen Z and millennials uh, started this plant based uh, um, strong, I wouldn't say trend. It's it's a movement really. It's, it's much stronger than it's it's really a change. It's changing consumer patterns, a drive for for better solutions, better for you, better for the planet, and. Um, so uh, and here we came with a product that clearly was the best in the market, and I would argue still is. Um, um, so uh, the good thing with cafes and, and particularly high-end cafes is that they're very uh, brand sensitive. It's important for them if you are a fancy, the owner of a fancy cafe in Manhattan, and you spend your life sourcing coffee beans and roasting and serving very you know demanding consumers they uh, whatever brands you associate with is key to your whole the whole consumer experience in your store um, and when you see that uh, Oatly's story brand brand positioning married with not only just the product and the product fit but also with their Typical branding, right? And then the way uh, the, the coffee trade wanted the high-end coffee in particular. Uh, it, it was a marriage in heaven in some ways. And, and um, the good thing here is that the, the, for the baristas, it became obviously that the, our brand was equally important to, to highlight that we have the best coffee with the best plant-based milks and here's Oatly. And so it was the cafes that introduced Oatly to the U.S. consumer market. And, and, uh, and not just in the U.S., across Europe, and now in Asia, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, we started in the cafes build a, a brand recognition and leading to the retailers coming and demanding the product in their stores. So, mm. um, so it was cafes, then retailers, and finally consumers in terms of mm-hmm. getting it into making it a household name. Yeah. I mean, you know, the consumers obviously uh, before the retailers, right? So the consumers learned about it from the cafes, demanded it at a cafe, started demanding it from retailers. The retailers were forced to come and ask us for listing our product. When you first started it, what was your expansion strategy? So I believe you said you started in Sweden and the UK simultaneously. And then how did you Mm -hmm. approach expanding from there and knowing which markets to go to? Well, it was a little, um, when you're small and niche, uh, there's a couple of different uh, approaches you can take. Uh, We didn't have much we're quite uh, uh, underfunded in many ways or, or cautiously funded, if you like. And there, it wasn't really a, a market where you could go raise a lot of money like today. Uh, there are so many investors that are throwing money, unfortunately, often after products that really shouldn't be funded. But but um, uh, that's a different conversation. But, but today, it's super easy to raise money uh, if you have a new food product, unique food tech of sorts. Not so much then, right? 20 years ago, that was people frowned on us and, you know, who are you and what's that? And food wasn't really known for fast growth or whatever. So we had to be cautious and we were somewhat opportunistic in, in I guess, if you're in Sweden, the traditional first markets would be to go to some of your Scandinavian neighbors. So we did that. We went to Finland very early and Finland actually has a much higher prevalence of lactose tolerance, lactose intolerance. Uh, four or five times higher than in Sweden, so which is interesting and some whole other 
a different story behind that. But uh, that was a very natural step for us. And there's, I would say, culturally, between Sweden and Finland, there are extremely strong ties and you know, long history of togetherness and, and fighting on the hockey rinks and, and whatever. So, so uh, very obvious, right? Denmark and Norway uh, came much later in our case. And then we opportunistically sought uh, partnerships. If you found a good partner in another country, you, you went there, right? And you had distribution and the traditional distribution strategy didn't work all that well. But but um, we we did um, did get a foothold in Scandinavia and in the UK, and and that's where we and we ran with that for for quite a few years. Mm. You also mentioned how in building Oatly, there were multiple times when you broke tradition from what's normally done in the food industry and how it was helpful to hire people who didn't necessarily come from a traditional background in food. What are Mm -hmm. some of the ways that you broke tradition or you saw benefits from different or new ways of thinking that came from other areas? Well, I I think uh, in the branding and positioning, it's definitely a very, very... um, a big difference from from what the food and still today there are very few companies that are anywhere near uh, uh, in in the, the trying to build so a lifestyle brand the way Oatly is doing it right so I think uh, that's really the primary um, primary way uh, or primary d- differentiator um, you could argue potentially later on that the distribution channel but it, it's really been a big shift in the food industry in general the last 20 years now. It used to be so dominated by retail. And uh, I mean, the traditional food industry, the, the traditional method in the food industry was to own distribution. So you guaranteed if you were a Unilever, you dominated the distribution side. So you guaranteed, you had guaranteed access to shelf space with the retailers. And then you just made sure consumers knew about your products on the shelves by broadcasting your message on TV and radio and billboards, right? So it was a one-way communication. If you analyze that model, you can conclude that effectively the producers, the Unilevers, Nestle's, Pepsi's, and Cokes of the world didn't give diddly about the consumer. The consumer was an afterthought. It was all about distribution and shelf space. And they can say whatever they want about their fancy marking. And, uh, oh, yeah, no, we are consumer in the focus. And, you know, we do taste panels and blah, 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 blah. It's all BS. They didn't care about the consumer. The whole game was owning and controlling distribution, which they did phenomenally well. Uh, but and, and as a new startup in, in that environment, you really had very little, you know, you had to go in, in niche, niche of niches, right? But what's happened in the last 20 years is that that model has now uh, gradually evaporated and it's really not, it's non-existing today. And you have so many other channels to launch products. Like we talked about cafes, but cafes is just one, right? It could be serviced office spaces, uh, you know, like a WeWork or, or uh, stadiums or, or you know, uh, some through QSRs, quick server restaurants, right? Or, or you know, there, there's so many, or internet for that matter. And internet has traditionally been really tricky for food, but uh, that that's uh, I think the pandemic, not the least, have have changed that dramatically, and that will definitely be a 
uh, a change that will stay after, if we ever have an after pandemic situation. What was Oatly's philosophy about caring for the consumer? Well, for us, it was the uh, consumer was everything and engaging with the consumer. I mean, way back when we started with the uh, the uh, meat protein allergic families, right? And it was really engaging with them and understanding what was, how could we make your life better? And uh, we got so many letters from consumers that were so grateful because of, we could improve the quality of their life in their uh, allergic re- reality, right? Where they were, had meat protein allergies. And I think that was became very quickly part of the DNA that, that uh, you had to be very close to the consumer and, and understand them and, and uh, deliver to them what they demand from you. And I think the key learning from those early days uh, where we often come back to authenticity, you, you have to be who you are, right? And you, you, you can't just take and apply a sticker because it happens to be the right message at the right time like whitewashing sustainability like so many people fall into that trap today our oh, consumers want sustainability okay let's slap a sustainability sticker on here and go it really has i think when, when tony came in and what he really did was an introspective analysis who are we and you know really go to the bottom of the inside of the company and highlight all the the emotions and feelings and sentiments that were inside a company and in the culture, in the DNA of the company and communicate those. Mm. Take a stand, right? Take a stand, not be wishy-washy and try to please everybody all the time. Uh, I think another thing with traditional food companies is that uh, they all still today, I would argue, struggle with a really interesting aspect, consumer distrust. Consumers around the world don't trust big food companies, period. That's a fact. Uh, and why is that, you wonder? I think maybe because they have a history of broadcasting their messaging and and n- never being authentic and honest with what they put in their products and, and trying to be, you know, please everybody. And, and, and it's sort of that anonymous big behemoth that uh, just peddles product and... and, and, and Consumers just gave up trusting them, right? Mm. And I think that was uh, another important part of the story is to, to start posting what ingredients do we have? Where, how do we source them? That's traditionally a no-no in the food industry. You don't tell what you have, who you buy your ingredients from and what ingredients you have. Uh, that's part of the secret recipe, right? And, and, and uh, hide behind e-numbers and you know strange names on the label so so clean labels straight communication honesty through everything you do um and um um, that's how you build respect and then also take a stand and sometimes upset consumers that may not like what you're standing for right it could be you know what kind of investors you choose or what kind of ingredient supplier you have whatever but if you have a, a, a mission and a cause, and that's that's driving, and you know, you know I think it's mm. ultimately that will prevail. So this November, I believe you are co-hosting a summit in California, the U.S. Nordic Food Summit, and I'd love to spend a little bit of time uh, one talking about that and what the intention is there but also around what your learnings have been when it comes to growing and scaling a company internationally entering the U.S. market, if there's anything you'd want to pass on or any, mm-hmm. any nuggets of advice. 
Great, thank you. Yes, so uh, it really started with, I, I've had the sense now, having lived in the US, uh, it's my second journey. I came here in 2013. My wife is American. We've been married for what, 20 plus years. So I spent all, since 1997, 98, uh, I spent pretty much half my time in the US. My kids are born in the US. I'm sort of Swedish American in that sense. I'm still Swedish citizen. I'm not an American citizen. But uh, my life is very much focused here. And, and the, the journey around Oatly obviously has been a very important and big part of my life. Um, uh, I spent a lot of time in the early days doing research and working, and, you know, ran an early. Uh, we tried to launch Oatly already back in 2008, actually, but had to pull out because of the Lehman Brothers collapse. Uh, and um, so, so uh, what I've seen with Oatly's recent success Success is that uh, there's two things really. It's the uh, the um, emerging uh, uh, capital market here that uh, I'm saying emerging, but the trend that's been emerging over the last couple of years, where everybody wants to invest in food tech, and, and that uh, you know, and that's just I would say maybe the last five years. Before that, uh, uh, really, it was uh, only a niche investors that went after this category. Uh, early adopters, but I think uh, what really made a difference was Beyond Meat and their phenomenal IPO a couple of years, about two years ago now, and um, that sort of opened the floodgates. Now everybody wants to invest in this space, and I don't know how many people in the investor community have reached out to me and wanted me to be, you know, advisor or offered me, uh, you know, positions in in funds and whatnot to help uh, succeed in this space because. People don't know, right? There's a big lack of expertise. Obviously, it's new, new to most people. So that's in the one bucket, right? There's an incredible amount of money and opportunity. And in the other bucket, I've seen, obviously, thanks to Oatly's incredible success, and both commercially and with its quirky, funny, the very differentiated marketing, this is strong curiosity for what? Sweden? Nordics? What? What happens there, right? Nobody looked to Scandinavia for food in the past, right? Really. I mean, you went to Ikea and had your, your meatballs and that was it. But um, uh, so, so I've seen a very strong interest. And uh, the other thing is, uh, obviously, I, a lot of friends and a lot of networks back in Sweden um, and Sweden and the Nordics, Finland, Norway, Denmark, uh, Iceland, right? You start to see an incredible uh, level of innovation. And um, I think we did an assessment. We counted to roughly 150 food tech companies in Sweden alone. Um, and um, that's incredible, right? It's, it's one of the, uh, it's become, the Nordics have become one of the hotspots in the world in food tech. You know, you have, the Netherlands, the Nordics, um, Israel, maybe in Singapore. Uh, uh, so, so um, and they all need funding and they need access to markets and whatnot. So, so the idea has been brewing in my mind that wouldn't it be fun to do something here? And, and the opportunity came with when I had some meetings with Business Sweden and the Swedish American Chamber of Commerce about a year ago. 
and their uh, representatives in the Bay Area. What, you know, they often ask, uh, they go out and ask the local uh, business people, what, the, what do you think, uh, how can the, these organizations help Swedish business? And, and I think it was uh, in that meeting, in that conversation, the idea was born, let's, let's put together the food summit here. There's so much happening. Um, uh, lots of food companies from Scandinavia that I want to tag along and follow on the open success uh, uh, out into the uh, North American markets and, and uh, vice versa, a lot of money looking for interesting companies to invest in. And, and that really is the premise for the whole thing, right? Um, and um, I couldn't imagine that it would take such a life of its own and become such a <laughs> super exciting and uh, you know, uh, event now where UC Berkeley, UC Davis, uh, both jumped on it and saw incredible opportunities and are co-sponsors. In fact, the summit will be at Berkeley, uh, where they're also building a Nordic center. Um, and the Berkeley sees an opportunity to send some of their business school students, maybe on internships and uh, to to Nordic food companies. UC Davis, uh, you know, one of the world's foremost food and ag tech universities obviously looking for partnerships and, and uh, uh, yeah, super exciting, really. And the interest for Nordic companies to participate seems overwhelming. So, so we are just like, wow, that, that's pretty cool. It's fantastic. And for you, what are some of the things that, whether you're coming from the Nordics or from another country in the world as a startup, you need to know about the U.S. market before going in or you need to be prepared for? Oh, so, so I think um, obviously there's no one answer there, unfortunately, right? Uh, and, and if it was, everybody would do it. So, so it, it's, I think one of the key things I've learned in, in my career is that uh, patience is uh, really uh, important. Don't expect, although there are companies that succeed overnight, right? But they're one in a million. It takes time. Be patient and it'll cost much more than you think. Mm. But don't let that don't let that scare you right be smart go in uh, build the be establish a beachhead whether that is a geography uh, in the north in i'm sorry in the us california or new york whatever or whether that is a vertical of sorts you go in after a hospital or a cafe or you know whatever um, but uh, be uh, build establish a beachhead and prove that you can supply a corner of the market and use that as a, a leverage to maybe raise funding or whatever and scale. I think uh, otherwise, I think the, the most common reaction I have in in Scandinavia and Sweden is that people are scared of going to the U.S. They, they see this as a big oh no no I can't oh no ooh, no 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 that's too oh, that's too far oh no can't do that right and and that's a bigger problem than actually really taking the leap of faith and 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 uh, going there and another thing I feel strongly uh, uh, is that don't trust yourself and trust a partner to do the job for you that will never work right mm. you need to have your own person on the ground here whether that's one or a small organization that kicked the butt of whatever distributor middle you know men women that you work with on the market here uh, the tradition is oh i need a distributor an agent that can help me right don't go there Mm. 
certainly not in food tech, right? Maybe if you know you have a commodity or something, it might be a different story. But um, when you have your own branded product, you have to be in control of your own brand and your own story. And the only way to do that is you have to have your own person here. Whether it's flying somebody over from your home country, uh, maybe a good idea in combination with uh, hiring some local guy that uh, you can trust and, and work with that you like that has the necessary experience from, from the local market. I think those are, are imperative for your success. Mm. And it's a good opportunity. Are applications still open if companies want to apply to come in November? and? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, happening? there's um, the second round is closing for applications. It's closing, I believe, uh mid is it this week maybe even well, it's on the website there's a yeah the, what are we today 13 tomorrow the next uh, round is closing tomorrow and then there will be a third round uh um later right where companies apply and uh we will see what we feel important why we have this process why don't we just take anyone is that we in order to ensure quality for the visitors that come to the summit, uh, notably uh, the uh, financial markets and, and possibly the CPG companies and, and uh, uh, companies, people, individuals looking for being a partner with the uh, Nordic com- food companies here, right? They need to see, we need to make sure that the companies that come here are in fact ready for the US market, right? In one shape, way, or form or the other, that could be somewhat arbitrarily at, at the end of the day to de- determine, right? But we at least want to weed out and make sure that we don't uh, uh, get companies that maybe should wait a year or maybe should come as a participant and, and, and meet and talk on the floor, but not present, right? We want to ensure quality. That's because they're meeting investors or other potential partners where when you say being ready, I'm thinking it largely means being ready to scale or being ready to or what, what does being ready mean? Uh, it's, it's a good question. There's not one answer on that either because it t- depends a little bit who you are, right? There are certain food tech aspects where already, uh, where if you're only on the R&D stage, still could be relevant to come here and look for funding and partnerships, right? Uh, uh, if it's a bigger project, maybe a little bit further out, but, but somewhat promising. Um, uh, in other situations, is that yeah, absolutely. You're coming here because you're ready to. Yep, yeah, I'm going to launch. You know, we're we're putting everything together, and now we need funding, or maybe maybe have already launched. Now they're test marketing. They have their embryo of an organization in the U.S. in place. They've proven they can supply and and you know satisfy the consumer uh, customer demand and needs, uh, and now ready to push the button and really accelerate their growth there. So, so you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Mm, excellent. I'd love to switch gear, gears now and talk a little bit about what you spend the rest of your time on. I mean, you've been pretty busy, but you yeah, also my have daytime job. your yeah. daytime job. Yes. Uh, but I'd love to switch gears and talk a little bit about Adventure and then some of the other ideas you have underneath that. So maybe you can start by explaining what Adventure is and then we can dive a mm-hmm. little deeper. Yes, thank you for asking. It's it's really uh, where uh, my brothers and my passion are. To, I mean, I think one thing we've learned from Oatly is that we 
we are really passionate passionate about developing and launching new new stuff right now when Oatly is what it is it's a big company it's growing uh i'm on the board and that's really exciting and, and interesting in many different ways but it's not being involved on a day-to-day it's sort of that first step where where we really thrive and i think we have really good experience right what we did uh, my brother put, he clearly came up with the idea of oat milk but he didn't do it all by himself he quickly realized that in order to pull this off he needed to pull together a world-class team of multidisciplinary scientists right and and that's another thing i think which is exciting with food tech today that to succeed in food tech you absolutely need multidisciplinary expertise you have to leave your silo the comfort and warmth of your silo where you're you know you're, you're among equals and peers and reach out across to other silos of, of buckets of expertise whether that is in health and medical for example if you're looking at health benefits with your food whether that is you know it's food processing it could be ag tech parts of it it's it's um, maybe components like protein science and enzyme science and, and uh, the list goes on right so he was really i think his biggest strength is that he's very good at finding and engaging and collaborating with the best of the best uh, by 2008, so we come a couple of years into the journey under the Oatly brand, right? We decided to take the R&D out of Oatly and that team and the network and create an independent R&D organization that we named Aventure. And one of the reasons was that already at that time, Oatly was relatively small still. It was really difficult uh, to motivate uh, a strong R&D team in a small company. And, and also, we didn't. it wasn't fair to the scientists to restrict them to look at only you know, short-term or mid-term projects that would benefit Oatly alone, right? Uh, because there was so much competence, so much curiosity. My brother and I spent a lot of time trying to create an environment for uh, that, you know, for inventions, for, that promotes inventions, encourages curiosity, encourages scientists to take their leap of faith and dive into stuff. Uh, and and um, uh, so, so that didn't work with the investor community that we started to attract in around Oatly that wanted to develop and commercialize the brand, right? So it was a happy, good divorce. Everybody agreed. Let's separate this out and, and uh, create, a, you know, a, a, an engine. So what we built with the venture is really truly a, a world's first food tech, true food tech. Uh, a breeder company, right? And I think we started seven, eight, nine companies coming out of there. Some failed, some we sold, we licensed out. And a couple of them are now in various stages of uh, early or, or about to go co- be commercialized. Right? What is a breeder company? I like I like the sound of that, but I want to know what, more of what it means. <laughs> it breeds ideas. It creates an environment for, for, for a fertile environment for ideas. And, and uh, that's what I put in, uh, what I mean by a breeder, it, it breeds ideas basically and, and provides a fertile ground. Yeah. You attract scientists to come and work with a venture and then it's, is it happening at a university or in collaboration with the university or does it stand on its own? How does that? 
both. So, so, yeah, we have a venture today. It's about 30-odd people, uh, two locations. We have uh, the main co- uh, offices in Lund, Sweden. And uh, we actually have a small R&D center in Hong Kong. And uh, in Aventure, we have subsidiaries today in the U.S., in Bolivia, and in India. We uh, we have really a worldwide grab. We are in, we also have a, a really exciting research project with a, a Sudanese scientist. She's educated and trained from at Lund University. She's a superstar. She's an emerging superstar in her field, and we're she's very passionate about helping her native Sudan developing new food tech solutions and, and that's a, it's a really exciting project we're involved with so you know africa latin america uh, and and um, asia are, are uh, we're not shy in that sense although we're only small but that's possible because we can do exactly this we can work with universities across the world right we have incredibly strong relationships is very strong leading scientists in Hong Kong, for example, at the China Hong Kong University. And we have, uh, uh, in that particular case, we're looking at diabetes and food for diabetics. Um, so what we what we do, our areas of focus in adventure is not just everything, right? But it, it really, I'd say a good chunk of it is still in and around oats in one shape, way or form. Um, but it's it's broader than that, right? We apply our expertise in enzyme processing and dietary fibers in uh, microbiota and, and other uh, research areas. Uh, fruits and berries, we do a lot of work on fruits and berries now and identifying health, healthy components. Um, what we want to do is develop foods that taste great, that have the right uh, functional properties, but that also deliver true health benefits uh, we're and we're primarily targeting uh, everything in and around the metabolic syndrome. So we're talking diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, Alzheimer, uh, um, cardiovascular disease, right? And and uh, we find that we have a we're carving out a niche, which is uh, we don't see many other companies, if any, really having that laser focus on on these kind of. Um, issues that are so big, uh, you know, 400 million diabetics on the planet, uh, 90 million pre-diabetics in the U.S. alone, 30 million diabetics, right? It's and and um, if we can provide food for those that, uh, if not cure, but at least uh, dramatically and clinically proven improve their life, there is an incredible potential for these products. How do you create products with clear health benefits? What's what's the approach to R&D there that's different from how it might otherwise be done when developing new food products? Well, you start with uh, there, there's always a lot in the food industry. There's a lot of implied health benefits, right? And, and if you look at oats, for example, when, when uh, my brother developed uh, the oat milk concept, um, I think it was in 89 or so around that time, that um, the first clinical studies on oats came out in general. Generic studies are sponsored by Quaker and General Mills, Quaker Oats and General Mills in the U.S., showing that oats reduces cholesterol. And uh, the scientists were starting to tie that benefit to the prevalence of the beta-glucon, which is uh, a soluble fiber that's 
relatively unique to oats. You find it in barley, you find it in certain types of mushrooms and yeast, whatever. But um, uh, certainly oats has a really important, uh, uh, it's an important source of beta-glucan and the oat beta-glucan is attributed to the cholesterol reduction. Um, and everybody knows that, but nobody can really describe, describe today still exactly why that is, right? And, and so this is a really interesting area of research and trying to understand what is it in oats that produces cholesterol. And then you can take that one step further. You, if you do this right, you can start finding a really interesting effects on blood sugar management. And then it goes on. So you start diving deeper and deeper into that, right? Same thing with berries. Uh, we were diving into uh, cognitive functionality. We've done, you know, essays now with, with uh, uh, studies uh, actually is preparing for some very large clinical studies on, on uh, human trials, right, with the hospitals uh, in, in Sweden and elsewhere uh, where we look at uh, cognitive function, for example, um, based on, on early findings um, it could be others globally. People are looking at all kinds of health benefits. And, and once you find avenues of interest there where you can apply deep science and, and, and uh, whether it's a, a question of quantity or isolating components and, uh, or, or having the, health, the right blend, I think uh, one good example is one of our companies that is my daytime job today. I'm the CEO of Good Idea, which is one of our uh, good ideas from from a venture, which is sparkling water that reduces blood sugar, and that's that. It's based on a blend of five amino acids and and uh, chromium. Uh, all of these amino acids and chromium are essential. You have to have them in your daily diet. So the ingredients themselves are not unique. The, but the finding here was that the combination of those five amino acids in the right proportions with the minerals uh, in liquid form. Uh, has an incredible effect on the body's ability to manage and regulate blood sugar, which is an incredibly important aspect for preventing diabetes, for example, right? Any, every single one of the 90 million pre-diabetics in the US should drink this every day with their meal. You get a 25, 30% blood sugar reduction. Um, but that's such an important a reduction in your blood sugar, it's actually beneficial for everybody. Uh, every time, uh, healthy blood sugar is a key for a healthy life. Uh, it, uh, you know, blood sugar spikes and the continuous ups and downs of your blood sugar makes you tired after lunch. And you, you know, it's inflammatory, uh, causes all kinds of issues if, if you have that uh, over a long period of time and leads to diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, Alzheimer's. Um, so, so um, the immediate effect is, of course, that we are much more focused. We're sort of harnessing your natural energy. You don't need to take an energy beverage to get energized, right? It's more the energy you actually have it in your body. It's more a question of using it in a smarter way, and, and the blood sugar helps you do that. So it's unlocking it, but it's also that when it's in this liquid format, it's easier for the body to absorb or to... Yes. Uh, I guess I want to use the word digest, but I'm not sure if that's the right technical term. Yeah, uh, I'm not metabolize. either. <laughs> metabolize. But, but yeah, metabolize, right? But it, it, it's it's uh, well, we have done nine clinical studies. And that's another thing. I, I think there are very few food companies that we see that are taking clinical studies so seriously that we do. 
And uh, I think you're going to see more and more companies do that. We have to, you know, but um, anyway. Why is it so important to focus on clinical trials and patentable products? Well, for a small independent food company, uh, if we were to rely on, on generic studies and research, right, you're quite exposed to competition. Uh, and and it's, it's so clinical studies and patents gives us a time monopoly to establish a brand and start building a product. Uh, uh, which would be impossible if you couldn't do that. Uh, so, so then you know, like a Coke would crush you if they wanted to go after that category. Now it's really difficult. They can, you know, maybe find other solutions, other ingredients to achieve sort of somewhat of the same results. But then you still have the clinical studies to go through, mm. and that it's. I think we've shown over the years now that we're really good at clinical studies you have a setup we can do a lot of that in-house with students and uh, we have a you know 30,000 student university loan university right in our backyard it's a great uh, source of all kinds of resources of that nature uh, so you can that helps us in our R&D and then when we have products that are ready for commercial uh, launch we can go to a CRO a third party a clinical uh, research organization and and have them do repeat their studies on a very much larger scale. Um, so we can show that it's not just our own in-house research, but it's a third-party vetted research. And, and um, that's the really only way to, to prove that we are what we are selling is not just smoke and mirror. It's not just some hyped implied health benefit. Um, and that's, if you look at, dietary supplements and the food industry in, in the U.S. today, I would say 99.99% of all companies that make any kind of claim, they are doing generic claims or they are making claims that they're not allowed to make because they have no, no, no science backing it. So, so And that's a, that's a problem for the food industry. Uh, long term, the only way out of that is to actually build it on solid science and prove that it works. Mm, and it definitely feels like there's a trend there in terms of more and more science-backed ventures. And one of the stories I often hear is that universities hold so much talent, there's so much research, there's so much potential, but the hard part can often be commercializing that and turning it into a business and bringing it into the wild. So Mm -hmm. what is it that you are doing well, or the formula you've kind of figured out that is helping you to make these science-backed ventures come I'll call it from the university or from the academics into the real world that they do spin out. Uh, uh, I think again, it, it's ability to reach, build global networks, and and engage. Uh, for example, what we've done very successfully, uh, and it's well kept secret, but it, it's not a secret. Everybody knows you can you can fund research. Uh, at university level by uh, industrial PhD programs, for example, you, you fund a PhD. It's actually a very cheap way, cost-effective, I should say, a way of getting access to leading scientists that spend you know, four or five years in an academic environment, study whatever it is you want them to study. Um, so so the having access and, and having connections on in academia that help you identify the, the right PhD candidate for the right project is part of the secret and part of the success story, right? Um, and uh, because a lot of the research we do is sudden at ground level, you have to work through universities and academia. 
it's really difficult to do that in-house. Uh, it's too high risk, too costly, and, but but that also means that it will take time. So, so patience is another aspect here. You don't expect, you know, innovations to happen quickly because they won't. Nope. Oatly was, what, uh, what do they say, the 20-year overnight success? That's the yeah, headline right. I've seen a couple uh, times. Yeah, exactly right. Hmm. So I'd love to transition now and ask you the final questions I ask everyone. And the first one's kind of big, but I think you can t- handle it. And it is, what is your vision for the future of food in 10 to 15 years? Uh, wow. Yeah. I, I, I'm actually really excited about the uh, level of innovation. And, you know, you, you're talking to Berkeley later, right? And, and, you should ask them. I'm pretty sure I, I talked to a professor at Hoster Business School. Uh, this was just before the the uh, pandemic, uh, uh, and I don't see the pandemic have changed any of that. On the contrary, but he said then that I think there was the last two, maybe even three um, uh, first year classes at their business school, right? They asked them, what industry do you want to work with when you're done? And, and now for the last, whatever, a couple of seasons, food industry is number one. And that's unheard of, right? Wow. I mean, we're in Silicon Valley or next door to it. It used to be biotech or, or you know, tech, whatever, right? But now it's food tech. Everybody wants to go into food tech. And we see that across the board. We see it in the Netherlands. We see it in Scandinavia, we, you know. Germany, a lot of the young and the youngest and the brightest, they want to be in the food and food tech industry. That's a really positive because there's a need, there's an enormous need to, to reinvent the food supply chain uh, from every le- on every level, right? From the plant, the seeds we plant to the to the uh, uh, waste we we manage, right, and everything in between, and and. Height and new technologies it could be, uh, you know, uh, new materials, uh, nanotechnology and packaging materials, for example, could have a huge impact. Uh, there's, in some sense, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to be picked here uh, for for uh, crafty individuals. And, and we talked about it earlier, right? There's a lot of money going into this category too. So I think we... The next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of quite dramatic innovations that will change a lot um, in packaging, in distribution, uh, uh, the way we we consume, the way we buy, um, and the way we manage the the byproducts. Um, So I think that's really exciting. And I think we'll see the big food companies, the incumbents, continue to struggle with how to figure out how they're going to you know, acquire or, or partner with new cool, fun companies and technologies, right? They've, they've been buying them up uh, left, right, center, and just to kill them, pretty much. Very, very few examples of successful acquisitions, I would say, right? And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and um, because I think it's a cultural thing. At Gen Z, uh, what's happening too is really cool, but Generation Z, uh, I think it's in 2029 or so, it will be the largest consumer group on the planet, uh, bigger than we have ever seen before. And, and they will have more money than any consumer group have ever had in, in, in the history of mankind. 
And so there's a bunch of Greta Thunbergs running around here in five, seven years. That will dictate everything, right? It's uh, the Gen Z is the generation that will save the planet, and they're dead set on doing it. And and they are extremely vocal, extremely activist, extremely uh, um, disruptive, right? Uh, if you don't get that today, and if you don't, if you're not prepared to play with them when they are in control and taking charge, right? Uh, you could argue they've already taken charge in some sense, but but um, well, then you're toast. So so you better become relevant to them or die. Uh, and that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Who are the big incumbents with the big deep pockets and the big distribution channels? They still own the distribution. It's still a really strategic advantage they have. But it remains to see how they can play that advantage. Uh, and and um, that would be really exciting to see how that plans, pans out. What do you think we are missing to get to that future? Uh, are we missing anything? I'm not sure. We have, you know, maybe time. <laughs> It'd be great if we got there sooner rather than later. Um, uh, but I think we have a lot of the components in place, right? Uh, uh, and the interest, the money, uh, the tools, curiosity. I know. I think um, there's some signs uh, here in the U.S. with the Biden administration's infrastructure project and whatnot going to unleash even more capital to be invested in in, in this. So, um, I yeah, I I think consumers are ready. You know, I think. Uh, uh, I, I don't really, I think we're in a great spot. We are in a great, great position to see a really dramatic change in the food industry. It's so refreshing to hear you say, say that. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's not always the, the answer that uh, people on the show come on and say. But one of the things, no matter what the future is, is that, like you've mentioned, it's a lot about collaboration. It's a lot about partnership. And I'm curious if there's anything you're looking for right now when it comes to collaborations or partnerships on any front. We have people listening from all over the world, so it's a very good way to crowdsource whatever you might be looking for. Um, but is there anything you mm. say you're looking for in terms of collaborations, help, advice, any ask? Ah, uh, wow. I should have prepared this more. Uh, I, I, you know what? I. I love engaging with with the entrepreneurs in the food tech industry, and uh, and I find too that um, sometimes the solutions are in places and areas where you don't expect them to be, and where you don't look. So so uh, uh, I I just enjoy conversations with uh, anyone with new great ideas, uh, you know, and and uh, maybe I'll be inundated. Uh, with people from all over, but but uh, I do a lot of work with, uh, uh, or I should say, I do some work with, with uh, uh, startups. Uh, I'm involved in a, in an accelerator uh, in Sweden now, hosted by Norwegian. Uh It's really fun. Companies from all over the world. I've been talking to companies from India and Mexico, and, and uh, have a couple of more interviews uh, later today, actually, and and. Um, I thrive in that. I can't say that there's a specific thing that, or I could say rather this, that there are a few things I'm looking for, but I can't tell you what that is. <laughs> uh, You'll know when you find so, it. So, so, um, yeah, 
and and I, I don't want to tell what I'm looking for either to a certain extent that it's important to keep that to myself. Uh, but but um, I love to engage with entrepreneurs uh, anywhere in the world. What's the best way for someone to get in touch with you then? Uh, LinkedIn, probably. Search me on LinkedIn. you find there and re- reach out to me. And uh, um, I can't guarantee I will answer because I get a lot of contacts but uh try it you never know you never know yeah well thank you very very much for coming and spending your time with us today and sharing your story and it'll be very exciting to see what other good ideas you come up with oh we got plenty (laughs) thank you all right that's all for today you can find the show notes and more episodes at nordicfoodtech.io And if you like what you hear, please be generous and take the time to rate the show or share it on social media. This is all about creating better food solutions, and we can't do that without your help. I'm Annalisa Winther, and let's spread the word about the Nordic food tech ecosystem together. See you next time.